Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Alrighty, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, chapter 9 tonight, we're in chapter 9. Uh, but as always, I want to pray for us and uh, we'll jump in and start working our way through. Um, looking forward to... To doing it, so let's pray, and uh, hopefully God will God will do some things tonight uh, within us. So let's pray, Father God. We're so thankful that you are so gracious to us, and Father, we pray that tonight, um, as every Wednesday that we've been able to gather thus far, you would continue to reveal yourself more and more, and Lord, that it would continue to to change us, to humble us, to move us. Father, we pray that um, even tonight, Father, as we look at the the prayer of Daniel, as we look at um, the prophecy that you've given him and Father that we would begin to see the hope that you've instilled not only that uh, you're in control and that you're going to win but Father also uh, that you are so merciful and compassionate and how available you are today Father we pray that you would help us to come to a knowledge of you that would, that would change us God we pray for just your Holy Spirit to be at work and, Father, that you would even um, help me, Father, to speak the words that you desire uh, to be heard. Lord, I love you, and uh, I pray all of these things uh, through your Son's name, Jesus, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we'll do a little bit of recap, and then we'll jump in. So, last class, we kind of went over chapter 7 a little bit. We went over a lot last class, really. We, <laughs> we went over a lot, but... Um, Chapter 7, chapter 8, we kind of tried to go through the last half of chapter 7 and then all of chapter 8. So just to recap, um, chapter 7 kind of finished off that fourth beast and who that would be and the ten horns being replaced by the three horns on that beast. And we, um, I, I, I think it was probably Rome, um, but although it could have been um, Greece as well. Uh, but then Daniel has an, another vision in chapter 8 that ultimately begins with uh, the, the goat, or the ram, I should say. The ram with two horns. One of the horns was higher than the other. It said it came up last. These specific horns are identified as the media and Persian Empire. And so this is kind of one of the things that when reading, uh, reading the book of Daniel, why we would say that those four kingdoms are specifically in the ways, uh, specifically Babylon, um, then with the um, media, media Persian Empire, then with the Greece, Greek Empire, and then with the Roman Empire, uh, because of the way that it shows even the animals in this, in this picture of the ram having these two horns and identifying them as these two empires. And then what happens is a goat comes, right? And this goat has one giant horn, but he is quick, he is powerful, he is strong, and he ultimately tramples down the ram. And we come to find out that this is the Greek Empire. And from what we know of the Greek Empire, we come to find out that this is probably Alexander the Great, specifically this horn, this king, this great king, who would, in fact, defeat the the Median Persian Empire. And ultimately what would happen is that Greek Empire would expand across the entire world. Um, But when Alexander died at his young death, um, about 32 years old, um, from what we think to be some sort of fever, uh, ultimately his empire would be fought over for quite a bit of time, about 20-ish years, until it finally landed with 
kind of being split into four different kingdoms. And, uh, but it's still Greek, still Hellenized. And so what happens uh, within that is as, as kind of new kings come up through the, through the family legacies, um, eventually Antiochus Epiphany would come up, which we believe to be that. So with this goat, the, the horn would break. Then four horns came up. That's where we get those four um, kingdoms, which from history we know validates this claim of four empires. And then comes one little horn uh, that, that comes up from from those, and that is what we believe to be Antiochus Epiphany. So if you remember, we kind of worked through the story of Antiochus, which is essentially uh, his, really he was trying to um, gain more and more territory to Hellenize the world and force that Greek culture upon the Jewish nation. And obviously, well, some of them wanted, wanted to do that, and then there was a small faction that didn't. And that small faction would ultimately have a revolt that was led under Judas the Maccabee. And uh, ultimately, he would become um, the leader of that until he died uh, in war. But ultimately, that would, through that kind of line, at, through their revolt, through their victories, they would ultimately become able to win their independence. And even through um, Judas and his, and his leadership, they were able to rededicate the temple, and that event became known as Hanukkah, right? So that's how that, that event even transpired. Um, and then, ultimately, when Judas would die, his brothers would take over. Um, eventually, the Jewish nation, I don't think we even covered this, but eventually the Jewish nation would come to terms with Rome, and they would, be, they would join an alliance with Rome, uh, and ultimately... After a while, I mean, it still took some political. There was still some political turmoil, but eventually, Rome had um, Israel's back uh, for a little while, and so Rome was or Israel was able to exist as kind of an independent state uh, for for a little while. Um, but um, that would kind of go on. We could go on for a while with the the history of Israel, but we won't. We're going to move on. So that's chapter eight, though. That's kind of where we landed. Um, that that little horn is Antiochus Epiphany. Um, again, some people, um, whether they whether they take the approach that it could be an antichrist type figure, um, most people do, regardless, agree that this is probably talking about the specific events of the Greek Empire. And so it's not necessarily um, whether it is or isn't the antichrist. It's more of, are you taking both this idea of historical, um, a historical fulfillment within the Greek Empire, and in addition to that, there's almost a typological Fulfillment as well that could happen with the Antichrist. So that's some people's opinions. Um, I would say that it's probably, in my opinion, is just going to be that Greek Empire. That I think is the historical fulfillment of it, and I think that that's what Daniel ultimately tells us um, within naming even some of those empires. So, chapter nine, we begin a new section. So, if you remember, the first two dreams or visions uh, begin with uh, Belshazzar, and. Within this next one, uh, ultimately we know that Belshazzar would end up dying after that feast, right? And in dying, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian, uh, whether those two people are the same or whether Darius was some sort of client king, we kind of talked about that, who the identity of Darius may be in some capacity, we're not exactly sure. But regardless, uh, they would ultimately take over the Babylonian Empire. That's when the Babylonian Empire would finally fall and Cyrus and Darius would, would take over uh, formally. So, we start, this is kind of in, where Daniel starts in the first, uh, really in the setting up, setting up this, this vision in the first year of Darius. So we're going to jump into it. Uh, there are, before we even get to like the weeks, because really what you need to know, verses 24 through 27, interestingly enough, small 
a small passage, but is, is known to be one of the most complicated, if not the most complicated, uh, passages to interpret throughout Scripture. And so we're, we're going to figure out why, uh, which is funny that it's so small. But uh, the point in the matter is that we're going to go through this whole chapter and see um, not necessarily the details of what verses 24 through 27 tell us, but more so of what the overall picture is that Daniel's trying to tell us about who God is. Okay, so um, as we read, uh, there will probably be some different words that stick out, especially in, um, in this chapter. Uh, but we kind of talked about this before as well. The book separated into Hebrew and Aramaic. You guys remember that? So chapter 1 has some Hebrew, and then it eventually switches to um, Aramaic, and that goes all the way to um, chapter, the end of chapter 7. And in chapter 8, we switch back to Hebrew. And we're not exactly sure why uh, this happens we have a lot of guesses, um, and really, your guess is as good as anybody's. Honestly, we don't, we don't know exactly why. I, I tend to wonder if it's because of these prophetic aspects to the nature of the story. Whereas 1 through 6 was a narrative of what the life of, of really the life of Daniel and his friends. Uh, chapter 7 um, is kind of the end of that, and then chapter 8 on is continues to go into these prophetic visions. Perhaps it was that Daniel wanted to preserve these specific stories, these, these specific prophecies for the people of Israel so that um, really a specific portion of people would be able to actually know exactly what uh, was being told. So I think that's a possibility, uh, but there's lots of possibilities, I mean, really. So, all right, chapter 9. We're going to start it. So, verses 1 through 2. Let's read it, and then we'll dive in. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Okay? So, that's kind of the introduction to this part. And it's important. It's important because he specifically does a lot of things within this passage. But like we said um, about Darius, we're not exactly sure who he was. Um, and even when it says the son of Ahasuerus, uh, that is a funky name to read in English. Uh, but basically that is an approximation of Hebrew. They're, they're, the way that they're saying that name, which is in turn from them, an approximation from the Persian name. And ultimately, uh, what we know as Xerxes is probably the Greek name. And so Darius, the son of Xerxes, we're not exactly sure who that is, um, outside of the fact that it's the same guy who, we're t- who we talked about in chapter 6. Um, so essentially, uh, this guy, Darius, it talks about the fact that he was made king. He was made king, which again is helpful for us to understand um, whether this was made king by God, which has kind of been the running theme throughout the book of Daniel, the sovereignty of God and his specific hands within the work that's going on. But also, it could be the very fact that Cyrus made him king over this specific area, if, if it is two separate people. And what it says is that he's over the realm of the Chaldeans. Now, if you remember, the Chaldeans are kind of the tribal people within the Babylonian Empire. So they are Babylonian, uh, but specifically, it's almost kind of the predominant tribal aspect of the people within the empire. And so when we talk about Chaldeans, that's kind of what we're saying, um, is that ultimately they are Babylonians, um, but specifically they have kind of a specific name. And ultimately they're the ones that came to power through um, Nebuchadnezzar and that, that, that dynasty, that lineage. Um, 
he was over the, the realm of the Chaldeans, which is associated again with Babylon. And, and in the first year of his reign, Daniel perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of Jerusalem, right? And what did he say? It was 70 years. So one of the things Daniel does, even within this, is he identifies the fact that the word of the Lord has come to Jeremiah. And in doing so, he actually validates this authoritative aspect of what it is Jeremiah has said and written down. That at least in some capacity, Daniel has um, resources or, or availability to these resources that are reminders to him, and really that he sees as authoritative scripture in some capacity. We don't know what all writings he has. He doesn't tell us that. He just says, uh, perceived in the books, the number of years that according to the word of the Lord. So he's, he is compiling them though. And it's clear that he has a, a compendium of sorts, a, a, a grouping of scriptures and books that he is ultimately referring to. And uh, the Torah probably being the primary one, uh, which is you know the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then a lot of the prophets as well and the history that would go along uh, with that, although it was evolving still at this time. I mean, there, there were still things that were ultimately um, coming into uh, play within the, the Hebrew canon, the, within what the Old Testament would become. And ultimately, he's beginning to give validation. So what I want to do is I want to read Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, so if you want to go to that, um, or you can listen along either way. But I'll give you a second to flip over to that if you want to. Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. Because this is most likely what Daniel's referring to when he's talking about this idea of perceiving uh, the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Okay? And so this is what it says. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. So, as you can begin to see, this promise is already beginning to come true. They're identifying, Daniel is identifying perhaps that he's nearing the end of it. Now, if you remember, there are a couple different dates, and we're not exactly sure which one Daniel is kind of using or referring to that uh, people use as the beginning of these 70 years. It could be around 605 B.C., which is when we believe Daniel and some of those noble, wealthy people were initially carried into Babylon, into captivity. It could also be around 586, where the actual temple was destroyed. It's kind of hard to know the actual timeline of when Daniel is considering the beginning point for this. Uh, But regardless, there's this 70-year period that Jeremiah prophesied. Now, scholars are kind of um, mixed on their opinions on whether this 70 years was literal or um, whether it was just not, not even metaphorical. It's not even that, but it's more just like an estimate so that it doesn't have to be exactly 70 years. It's just the point is that it's around that time period and that the 70 years, more than anything, is not to, to um, put together a chronology of sorts, but actually to use that symbolic number of seven, which I think we've talked about, is that, that number of completion, um, to use that 70 idea and, and use it in a way to uh, basically show how God is using uh, the, this exile, this punishment, in a theological way, uh, even within a time, a time uh, consistency that is close to 70 years. So all that to say, whether it's exactly 70 years or whether it is kind of just within that time frame, regardless, it is really, really close. 
Um, they are going to be, when Cyrus comes into power around 539 BC, so if you, if you do start from that 605 BC, right, what's 70 years? 535 BC. And when Cyrus comes into power in 539, that, he's, he's the guy who's going to send them back. He's the guy. So ultimately, it's not exactly um, 70 years when Cyrus makes that decree, um, at least from what we know. We don't, we don't actually know, but we don't know when they get there. We don't know when they travel there. We don't know when they, exactly when they rebuild the temple. And so a lot of the timelines that begin to take shape in Daniel are, are really guesses. They're, they're educated guesses, uh, but we just aren't exactly sure on a lot of this. And so that's what we're going to get into even when we get into the end of the dating. So um, that's kind of the beginning. That's how we're going to start this. So now what we're going to do is I gave you guys two pieces of paper. Uh, one of them is Daniel 9, 4 through 19, right? And the other one is a chart, which we'll use later, but that's going to be for the different interpretations of those last three verses, okay? So what we're going to do with the prayer now is something a little bit different than we haven't done before, but I think is really, really valuable. And the reason I gave you this is because I'm going to have you basically do some circling, some underlining, and all this stuff throughout the prayer. You can do it in your Bible if you want. Um, I just didn't want to assume that you were going to. So that paper is there if you'd like to do that. Um, If you need some pens or if you don't have a pen, um, I'm sure we can find you some. We have literally pens everywhere in this building. Uh, But uh, basically what I want to ask you to do is just spend some time going through this prayer. And here's what I want you to, to do. I want you to put a circle around the parts where it talks about who God is and what He has done. Okay, a circle around who God is and what He has done. I want you to underline who Daniel and the people of Israel are and what they have done when it talks about Daniel and the people of Israel. I want you to underline that. Okay, and then the last or two things actually. I want you to square when Daniel asked God to do something. I want you to put a square around that. Okay, and the last thing is just to put a star. Anywhere that you may have questions or helpful comments that you want to share with everybody or uh, get clarification for. Okay, so I'm going to go through that one more time because there's four of them. You can write it down on the bottom of the sheet if you want. Make a little key for yourself. So circle around all the places where it talks about who God is and what he's done. Underline who Daniel and the people of Israel are and what they have done. Square what Daniel is asking God to do. Square when Daniel is asking God to do something. And then star wherever you have questions or comments. And I can give you a little bit of an example, just so you're clear on what I'm asking to. Basically, uh, in verse 4, for instance, I circled, O Lord, the great and awesome God. Okay, so that's who God is. I'm going to circle that. So that's kind of the idea. That's the gist of it. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and go through that on your own and just go through that prayer and then even share, share with your table a little bit of what it is you're finding and you're seeing. Okay? Can number two? Number two is underline um, when Daniel talks about himself and the people of Israel, who they are and what they've done. Okay? So take some time, go through that, and then share, share your results with your table a little bit. All right, you guys all finishing up a little bit? So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll talk about it. So if you're not done, you can keep going if you'd like while while I read through it. It's long, but it's worth it. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and loving kindness for those who love Him, 
and keep His commandments. We have sinned, committed iniquity, acted wickedly, and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all the peoples of the land. Righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us open shame, as it is this day. To the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, to those who are nearby and those who are far away in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of their unfaithful deeds which they have committed against you, open shame belongs to us. O Lord, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against Him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His teachings which He set before us through His servants the prophets. Indeed, all Israel has transgressed Your law and turned aside, not obeying Your voice. So the curse has been poured out on us, along with the oath which is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God. For we have sinned against Him. Thus He has confirmed His words which He had spoken against us and against our rulers who who ruled us. To bring on us great calamity, for under the whole heaven there has not been there has not been done anything like what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquity and giving attention to your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the calamity in store and brought it on us, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done. But we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who have, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as it is this day, we have sinned. We have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts, let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city Jerusalem, your holy mountain, for because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all, to all those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and take action for your own sake. O my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. This is the first time in the book of Daniel that Daniel would refer to God by his name, Yahweh. This is the first time that he would use the covenant name that God had given him. So here's what I want to ask first. What does it say? Who does it say God is? The Lord my God. What else? Great and awesome. What else? Righteous. What else? Keep it coming. He keeps his covenant. He brought the people out of Egypt. He's a rescuer. What else? He's compassionate and he's forgiving. Who else is this God? He's teaching. Who are we? When Daniel's talking about this prayer, saying this on, a, on, the, on behalf of Israel, what does he say about Israel? What they've done? 
They've acted wickedly and rebelled. What else? We've sinned. Yeah. What was that over here? They've been. They've had unfaithful deeds. Yeah. They've not listened to the prophets or the law of Moses, right? What else? They, they haven't sought His favor. They haven't sought His favor. They haven't even begun to take a step toward Him. And lastly, what does Daniel ask of this God? Yeah, let not your anger and your wrath be upon Israel, right? Let it turn away. What else? His compassion. He asked for His compassion. What else? His forgiveness, yeah. To listen. listen. He asked Him to listen. What else? Do not delay. I love even how Daniel ends that last part. We kind of said a couple of those. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay, right? Because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel's prayer is this, this, this asking of God to remember his people. Not because his people deserve mercy, but because it is a direct re- representative of this God. And Daniel's concern is, 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 there's a lot of them, there's a lot of concerns. But what he wants most of all, is for this people to be one that is able to represent their God well. And they haven't. They've rebelled. They've walked away. They have forgotten the covenant. And we talked about this covenant idea within our first week. You guys remember that? This covenant, is a, it's, a, it's like a contract. It's not a contract, but it's like one. It's a promise. It's this idea that ultimately God has done something for His people. Specifically, He did this through Abraham first. Right? He made this covenant promise, this, this, this binding that He did in Genesis 15 when He cut these animals in half, right? Because when you make a covenant, you cut it. And you cut these animals in half and you walk through it because each party says, if I don't uphold my end, I should be torn in half. That is the point. But what happens to Abraham? He falls asleep. And there is only one person that walked through the animals. And that was God. And he did so in the symbolic representation of this pillar of fire. He walks through and his promises, his promises that he had made to Abraham are the ones in which Daniel is now referring, that carried over into Moses, that carried over into David. And now they have come so far and yet here they are again in Babylon. They're in exile, they're in punishment because of their sin. And finally, David, or Daniel uses the name of his God and he comes before him and he says, Oh God, it's, been seven, it's almost been 70 years. Is it time to return? Is it time to go back? Is it time to finally go to the place where you dwell and worship you in the way that you deserve? Will you restore us? Not because we deserve it, but because it would actually bring you glory. Will you restore us? Not because we deserve it, but because in truth, it would be a way in which these people could continue to allow the nations to see their great God. Daniel is going before the God of the universe, naming Him Yahweh, and saying, remember us, remember us, despite our wickedness. But he's doing something. He's repenting. He's moving the ball forward with this idea, on the, on, on really on behalf of the nation of Israel, that says, I completely understand why we're here, why we're in this position. Will you restore us? Will you bring us back? 
I love reading the prayers that are in Scripture. I love hearing, overhearing this, these conversations with God that these people are having. Especially, I mean, these are the saints, right? We get to hear Solomon uh, pray a similar prayer in, in 1 Kings 8, I think. I think it is. You know, we get to overhear Jesus pray to His Father in John uh, through when He starts, I think it's in chapter 17. We get to overhear these, um, these amazing prayers and we get to take part in the conversation that, that's happening. And I think that what's most important is that we begin to see ourselves in them. That the people of God is not being reduced to this nation of Israel. That the reality is the nation of Israel becomes in so many ways a type of what we've all... Not only of what we, we've been invited to be a part of, but also about our own you know, cyclical rejection. That over and over again, the people of Israel would reject. Over, and then he'd bring them back, and then they'd reject, and then they'd bring them back, and they'd rebuild the temple over and over again, right? And finally, Daniel's like, is this the time when you're going to fix it all? Is this it? I know we're getting close to 70 years. I, I perceived in the books of Jeremiah, this might be the time where you restore everything. And Daniel begins to wonder. While he's praying this... It says in verse 20, in chapter 9, verse 20, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God, for the holy hill of my God. There he uses that. He uses Yahweh again. He says, I was speaking in prayer. The man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Now, Gabriel interrupts Daniel's prayer. Why does he do that? Why does it say he does that? Absolutely. He was heard. He lifted up words to God and he was heard. And part of what it says is because it was because you are greatly loved. Why is Daniel greatly loved? Why do you think that is? Why has God singled him out? He's been loyal? What else? Yeah, Daniel knew God. Why else would Daniel be loved? Humble. He's humble, yeah. What else? He loves God, yeah. What else? Anything else? He was willing to die for him. These are all true. They're all true. But I think there's one most important part of this that I don't want you guys to miss. The reason that Daniel is greatly loved, the reason that Gabriel interrupts this prayer, is because perhaps, I mean, I I don't know, but perhaps for the first time in a long time, this prayer of repentance finally reached the ears of God because someone finally had the boldness to repent. Repentance. Repentance. Part of why Daniel is greatly loved is because he was willing to allow himself to become completely vulnerable before God. He's no longer defensive. He's confessing all the sins, not only that he participated in, but even the, the nation that he was a part of. 
He's saying, we have done wickedness. We have for, completely forgotten your covenant. You have done... I think, think of all the things God has done for His people. He helped them to come out of slavery from the Egyptians. He helped them to overcome nations. He helped them to expand their empire so that they could continue to rule in a theocratic way. Up until, of course, they rejected their king, right? And if you look at the book of Judges, it starts going through all these judges before they finally reject that king. And you know how the book of Judges ends? It ends with this retelling of Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens in the book of Judges at the very end is this man, this Levite, of all people, a priest, brings a prostitute with him to this person's house. And he goes inside, and the people, who are Benjamites, they come to the house and they say, we want to sleep with that guy. This is, this is a retelling of, the, of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the exact same thing that happened. And what does he say? No, of course you can't. He throws his prostitute out. First off, why is a Levite with a prostitute? Right? He throws his prostitute out, and this woman is raped by multiple people. These are Israelites. And at the end, she finally is so beaten and bruised that she's laying at the foot of the door. When the next morning, the man walks out, and he, and he sees what has happened, and he cuts her in pieces. And he sends her to every, per, every tribe of the nation of Israel. And for the first time, the nation of Israel sees what they have become. That is what the book of Judges is about. How the depravity of Israel explodes into that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet God is faithful to them, regardless. And when Daniel approaches God with this covenant prayer, he's saying, I am so sorry of what we have become. I acknowledge it. I confess it. I give it over to you. And God loves him because that's all he ever truly desired. Was that in the working of our confession and our repentance, he could actually begin redemption. He could actually begin reconciliation, restoration. And so, one of the things I wanted to do tonight is because we've been so heavy in the history and the theology is to remind us of this. God has called us to confession, not because He wants to leave us beaten and bruised, but because He so desires to love us well. And He can never do that if we believe we've never done something wrong. And the reality is that the more that we can confess, become vulnerable with the worst parts of our life, the more humble we will become. And where there is humility, there is transformation. But humility comes when we are willing to say, it's okay if I look terrible to the people around me because I know that my God will accept me back. And it was at this moment of repentance for Daniel. Sure, he had done lots of good things, but God does not love us because we do good things. God loves us because we finally allow Him to. And the more that we allow Him to do something in our life, the more we can actually approach us and he'll, He will finally hear us, not because of our, the merit that we've established on our own, but because of the righteousness of our God, of His great compassion and mercy, if we would just allow Him to take our sin from us. Don't miss this. Confess. Find those people in your life to share the worst parts of your life with, and especially share it with God. And God will show you compassion and mercy. He will hear you. He will hear you. And Gabriel interrupts this message because he's got good news. 
Now, I want to stop there. I want to just do some... Oh, actually, I have a couple of things before we do questions. Uh, a couple of things within this. First off, it's a vision. It's not a dream. So it's, that's interesting. He's used to having dreams, right? But this is a vision. It's a little bit different. It's not completely different, but it's just it's, a, it's, a, it's interesting that instead of a dream, it becomes a vision, and that ultimately Daniel doesn't understand it. That's kind of the irony of chapters 7 through 12, is that for the whole book, Daniel has understood the visions until they finally mean something about him. And then he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't understand them. Even when they're explained, he doesn't understand them. But what begins to take place is Gabriel comes at the evening sacrifice. Now, part of why this is meaningful is because he can't offer sacrifices. There's no temple. They're simply using this evening sacrifice as a way, Daniel's using this way as a, as a way not only to tell time, but to help us know what it is that he's been separated from. He's a part of this covenant relationship with God, and yet he can't actually participate in the, in the ways in which God has called him to. Right? And so, this probably would have been about 3 or 4 p.m., from what we know of when the evening sacrifice would take place. Uh, but, but it's an amazing thing, the fact that ultimately this sacrifice isn't actually taking place. Right? It's just he's using the language. But Gabriel comes and he gives them understanding of what's going to take place. So before we get into the, these last three verses, which I know it's kind of crazy that we've kind of gone through the whole chapter already except for the last three verses, but these last three verses are a chunk. So um, any questions within the, that first part, though? All right, cool. Well, my sermon, at least for that part, is over. So... All right, let's get into uh, verses 24 through 27. So I'm going to read it for us. Now, uh, really, I don't know what translations everybody has, but I'm going to read from the ESV, which is, uh, you, you are going to be able to tell something within this, these verses that is particularly important, that is probably going to be different in your translation. So listen closely, okay? And uh, circle it when you get there in your Bible, because it is important. Seventy weeks are decreed. Decreed. This is a decree from God Almighty. That means it's going to happen. Okay? That's what we've seen already through the whole book of Daniel. He's in control, and he's making a decree. It says about your people and the holy city, whether this means the people of Israel specifically, or whether this will, this will come and encompass all of the church as we become the nation of Israel, uh, a new Israel, um, is up to your interpretation. All right, Kind of one of the things we've been talking about the last couple weeks. But it says about your people and your holy city, first off, because this is a response to Daniel first and foremost, and the prayer that he just put up for the people of Israel, even though that prayer sounds like it's coming, like it could very well come from our own lips. Uh, The reality is that this one, he's talking to the Jews. He says, To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word, to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then, for sixty-two weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat. But in a troubled time... And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for one half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. 
All right. So let's talk about this a little bit. Um, now's the time you're going to want to get those charts out. What did you notice in, in my translation that was different than yours? Did you guys see, see what that was? Then I'll tell you. What's that? Oh, yours had Messiah instead of anointed one? Yep. Um, so that's a, that's, an, that's, a key, that's a key point right there. That, that ultimate. What translation do you have? New King James. New King James, okay. So that's an important point that the New King James is making an interpretive... They're making an interpretive uh, suggestion there when they put in Messiah. Not because it, it's not, um, but ultimately it's not necessarily saying it's the Messiah. It's saying it's the anointed one. And there are different opinions on who this anointed one will be. And it's not necessarily the Messiah. Um, so, yeah, what else did you guys hear? Weeks. The weeks, yep. Uh, so, if you notice, uh, well, are you saying the weeks in terms of it saying weeks or in a specific part in there? I should clarify that. Yes, yes. So uh, some, some translations will say seven sevens or 77s. Uh, some translations will say 70 weeks. Um, okay? And really those are the same, those are the same types of ideas. Uh, the point is more so that there's kind of this, this uh, symbolic year that's, well, maybe, perhaps symbolic. We think it might be a year. We don't actually know whether oh, the week it's referring to is weeks or whether it's like a symbolic aspect of, the, of years. Um, almost across the board, from my research, everyone thinks it's years. Almost across the board. Um, the reason being, if it were actually weeks, it would only be 490 days. And just from what we know of history, there's nothing that happened that seems like it's describing what's happening in these three verses uh, that we know of. Surely we could find something. Maybe we find something someday. But what it seems like it's saying in these verses is is very is there's nothing that happened in 490 days. So most people take it as years, but it may not even be years. Okay, it could just be a symbolic representation of, of a time span, and then we'll talk about that. But yeah, that's a good that's a good point as well. Uh, what else? What else do you guys see that was a little different? I'll call it out for you. Notice at the end of verse 25, it says, well, it's kind of in the end. I guess it's kind of at the, near, near the end-ish. It says, uh, Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks it shall be built again. Right? How many of you guys have then for, and how many of you guys have and? Seven weeks and 62 weeks. How many of you guys have that? And? How many of you guys have seven weeks then, for 62 weeks, how many of you guys have that? A couple of you? Do you see the distinction there? That's a big distinction. It's one thing to say 7 weeks and 62 weeks. It's another thing to say, this happens for 7 weeks, then, for 62 weeks, this happens. You see the difference there? That's a major translation um, issue. And it's not necessarily, I mean, really, what, again, for my research, across the board, they, this is just really hard to understand in terms of the Hebrew syntax of what exactly Daniel is saying. And so uh, people are, there. I think for the, for the most part, now I don't know Hebrew super well, uh, but from my, at least from my li- very limited understanding, um, seven weeks and 62 weeks seems like the best interpretation, uh, or translation, I'm sorry. Um, and that is what you're going to find in most of your Bibles. 
is that seven weeks and 62 weeks. Now that's going to become really fundamental uh, to what it is we're going to talk about. So let's get into the different views. Uh, The different views begin with the preterist view. So um, let me just go through all these and kind of just share what each view really means. So the preterist view is a view of the coming of Christ that actually we didn't talk about because it's such a minority view. Okay, but these are the major views that people take in terms of what these 70 weeks might mean or the 77s might mean. Okay, so the first is the preterist view, which is the idea that actually Jesus' second coming already happened and we all missed it. Okay, so it's a very, very small minority view, but it is a view, so it's in there. Uh, dispensational futurist is going to typically be within that premillennial. Uh, dispensational premillennial idea. So if you remember what that is, again, it's the idea that Christ is going to come back before a thousand-year reign that's going to happen, and that ultimately time is distributed between dispensations. Uh, and so that last, we're right now we're in the dispensation of the church, okay? And then eventually, uh, when when Christ does come, um, it will it will change, okay? So that's kind of this dispensational futurist idea typically aligns with that millennial view. The covenantal futurist um, could be both the historic premillennial, but it could also be amillennial, in my opinion, uh, but it, with a few different nuances, but mostly historic premillennial, uh, which again is the idea um, that there's, it's very similar to dispensational premillennialism, but there is no rapture, uh, there's no uh, tribulation per se. Um, it has to do with some promises to Israel, but not as they're not as it's not as distinct as the other one. Um, they believe the kingdom has started, and ultimately, when Christ comes back, things will kind of get worse as Christ get back, gets back, but not in a, a crazy tribulational tort, sort of way that dispensational dispensationals would typically believe. Um, and then, um, ultimately, God will come back and reign for a thousand years, and the church will be ushered into the new new heavens and new earth. Okay, so that's usually the covenantal one. The Maccabean one is um, ultimately a more historical approach. So when we talk about the four empires, and some believe that it's Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, and they see Greece as that fourth empire, they typically take this Maccabean approach. Um, I actually think that you can take the Maccabean approach even if you think that Rome is the last empire. And in fact, I think this is a, I think that this is a very good interpretation if you were to ascribe to this. I think it would, it would, it's very good. Um, and all millennial, I kind of added this one in because I didn't feel like the other ones completely, um, completely associated themselves with this all millennial approach. Which again, if you remember, the all millennial approach is this idea that when Jesus died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, the kingdom began. And so, there's the, the thousand year reign is not this literal reign that happens in the future, but actually the kingdom begun when Jesus um, basically ascended into heaven. Um, and so that all-millennial view takes the, doesn't take the idea of rapture or tribulation. It just simply says Christ is going to come back someday and everyone's going to be resurrected. Judgment Day is going to happen. That's kind of it. Um, it's, it's the simplest in terms of how the events play out. Now, this all-millennial approach, I didn't put dates in there, if you, if you notice, in that, in that column. And that's because dates do not matter in the all-millennial approach. They are not concerned with a 70-year literal um, distribution at all. They believe more of a symbolic interpretation of or the 77th, I should say, not 70 years, but the I guess 490 years. They are not concerned with the 490-year distribution. So, all right, now let's take a step back. 
because this is gonna this is probably getting a little complicated, at least to some to some extent. So, if the seventy sevens are in fact the sevens are years, and we're talking about seventy of them, that would be four hundred and ninety years. Okay, four hundred ninety years. Now, the way that Daniel is splitting this up, at least from what it seems, is into three different sections. The first is seven sevens, which is forty nine years. Uh, the second is um, sixty two sevens which is 463, right? I think that's right. <laughs> uh, and then the last seven is... No, that can't be right. What is it? Hold on. i got to just look at I can't do the math that fast in my head. 434 years. Um, and then the last seven is seven years. Okay? That's kind of the general interpretation of this passage typically. But I want to make it clear, nobody really knows. Okay, so what we're going to talk about tonight is not something that's dogmatic in any way. It's not, uh, there's really no consensus at at all um, on this from any scholarship. uh, But there certainly are opinions about it. So that's what we're talking about tonight is what are the major opinions and why do they matter? Because I'm not going to talk about something like this if it doesn't actually matter. Okay, so... Um, preterist, um, I won't spend a ton of time on that one just because, like I said, it's a minority view. But the whole point is that essentially the 490 years began at Cyrus when he made the decree that ultimately uh, the Jews would go back to um, their land to rebuild the temple and to rebuild their city. So a couple things, actually, I should, I should note. Um, this is, I mean, I'm sorry, I should have, I got to back up again because this is going to get complicated. Verses 24 through 27 says these things that ultimately people think are really important in terms of interpreting this. And the first is this, that there are 77, 490 years are decreed about your people and your holy city. And these are the six things that Daniel is told is going to happen at the end of this time period. Okay, so keep this in mind. You can number them if you want. There are six. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, to anoint a most holy place. Or your translation may, may just say, to anoint the most holy. Okay? I don't know which, which one you may have there. but um, So those are the six things that ultimately most people believe at the end of these 490 years, these things are going to take place. Why? Well, first off, because it says that. But also these implications of what it means is that this really seems like it's talking about Jesus. This really seems like that. Okay, It seems like ultimately if, if transgression's done, if sin's done, if there's an atonement for iniquity, if there's everlasting righteousness, if there's no more need for vision or profit any longer, uh, and if we're anointing the most holy and, or the most holy place, you know, which is probably most holy, I think is probably mo- most of your translations say is probably the right translation, the most holy. Um, that seems like it's talking about Jesus, at least from what we do as we look back at this idea. Okay, It seems like that. And so that is really what almost all of these views are taking this vision as. And so what every view does, what every view does, is they take the life of Jesus and the, and the temple, and they try to piece together the 490 years. And, they're, and really, literally, every single position is taking a guess at how this distribution is happening, okay? So, 
now we can get into it. Now that hopefully we'll bring some clarity as to why people are drawing these conclusions, okay? Because ultimately it sounds a lot like Jesus, okay? So, the dispensational view is that ultimately it starts with Artaxerxes, uh, which if you remember, he's part of the dynasty that we gave you in the Achaemenid dynasty. And Nehemiah 2 mentions him a bit. Um, And then from there, so we think that that was probably 458, although it could have been 445 BC. This is the hardest part about trying to nail down the timetable, is that we're not 100% on the dates. Again, we're making educated guesses. Like, these are pretty close, but we're not completely sure. So let's start with 458. If we go from 458 to 26 AD, uh, this could be the baptism of Jesus. It could be at a triumphal entry. Uh, Most people within this line of thought think it's the triumphal entry. And so what they're saying is that... Um, ultimately, this this coupling of the seven weeks and sixty two weeks, this four hundred and um, or I guess this uh, let's see, will that be? Let me back up here. Oh, I see. Yeah. So the seven years, the forty nine years, are from um, basically four forty five to when um, the temple is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt with Ezra and its completion in, in 409 B.C. And then the 62 sevens, which is that 434 years, goes from 409 B.C. to Christ's first coming in 26 A.D. Okay, so that's the rest of it. That's the 434. And when we get to that, we we're not sure whether that could have been where Jesus was baptized and his ministry was kind of inaugurated, where it started off, or it could be where Jesus was entering the city for the triumphal entry. Again, the dates are a little um, obscure. We're not exactly sure. But the idea is ultimately that the anointed one would come at that point, and then ultimately his death and resurrection in possibly 33 AD, which is where you'd get that last seven years from, is the cutting off of the anointed one that it talks about um, at the end, within these last three verses of how that's going to happen. Now, one of the things that happens as well is there's a gap that takes place in this dispensational view. Whereas um, this, this gap ultimately makes it so that um, there is a, the last seven years doesn't completely happen in the ways that it should have. And so um, notice in, in verse 26, it says, And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. Right? We believe that that, most people believe that was Jesus. Most of these views believe, believe that that was Jesus. And shall have nothing. And then the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end shall come. So what most people believe is that ultimately Israel, within this dispensational view, I should say, is that Israel didn't um, respond to the sacrifice of Jesus. This dispensational view would say, because people didn't respond to this view, that now there's this gap. Basically, like, God's plan in this aspect failed. Um, and ultimately, there's kind of this parenthesis. There's this gap that's happening now. And the, and the Gentiles are coming into the church, but we're still waiting on the full, um, the full uh, acceptance of Israel back into the church. For them to finally see that Jesus actually was the Messiah, they had just missed it the first time. And that last seven-year period will ultimately happen uh, when uh, he comes back and they begin, this, this tribulation begins to take place. And that's when the people of the prince will come. And for them, that people of the prince is, if you remember um, from chapter 7, they believe that that last, that last empire is Rome and that there's those 10 kings, but then there's a couple more that come up. 
And they ultimately believe that within this, the Antichrist will come, and that the seven years will ultimately, he will, you know, if if you read what it says here, he'll come to destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. So people see that, the, the Antichrist within that, those who take that dispensational view. Okay? The second view, the second view. Um, well, I should say, does anybody have specific questions about that real quick before I move on? I know this is kind of confusing because it's, it is confusing. <laughs> There's a lot of mapping that's going on with these dates. And like I said, it's kind of everyone taking their best guess at what's happening. So we'll go to the covenantal futurist. Again, this is kind of in line with the historic premillennialism. And it's the idea that instead of it happening with Artaxerxes, it happens with Cyrus. And when it happens with Cyrus, um, it, they believe that when Cyrus came into power, uh, which was, would have been around uh, 538 BC, that those first seven, or, or I'm sorry, they believe that when the temple was destroyed in 586 BC, that those 49 years would take place from that into Cyrus's reign. And that Cyrus would be the one who essentially would send the decree, the word out, for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, which is true in some senses. I mean, he sends the, the, Israel, um, the Israelites back. And so when he does that, that, that is the 49 years. And then the 62 years goes from 538 B.C. into Jesus' ministry. Uh, whether they think it's the baptism and ministry, again, not exactly sure. They would not say triumphal entry. They would go more with the ministry there. Um, but then they would actually say that that seven is when Jesus is crucified. And they would ultimately say that at that point, um, that's when the, anointing one, the anointed one is cut off. And then uh, the city is destroyed by Titus. Uh, they would see that as the fulfillment of that, where the city's destroyed and wiped out. That's actually by Titus, who was the son of Vespasian. He would become the emperor after Vespasian, the emperor of Rome. And uh, ultimately, he would end up cutting off... Um, the, the city and really destroying the whole temple. He would be the last person to destroy the temple and the entire Jewish religion would change from that moment on. The entire religion would change. And so uh, that, they take that view. But that the covenant is actually confirmed through Jesus. That through when he's cut off, it actually confirms the covenant. And it's not as if it's not the Antichrist, therefore, who's making the covenant with people and making them basically align themselves with evil, but actually it's Jesus who's, make, who's, who's affirming the covenant, the covenant. He's not even making a new one at this point. He's just simply affirming it, confirming it, and allowing it to prevail is actually what the Hebrew seems to indicate, this, this aspect of prevailing, and that the covenant prevails through when even this, the city is destroyed in 70 AD. Um, and then ultimately what that would lead to is eventually uh, the Antichrist would come, and that last um, bit would be ultimately moved forward through the Antichrist would come and have his way for you know that seven years or that like increased aspect, and then Christ would come back and return. So that's the the covenantal futurist aspect right there. Okay. So any questions about that? All right. Cool. So we'll go to the Maccabean. This one is the historical approach in the sense that it doesn't believe. It believes that the 490 years are literal years, um, but it is not associating it with Jesus at all because they don't think that Daniel was doing that. Um, If you remember, most people who take that Maccabean approach are typically not as concerned with 
the New Testament and how that funnels back in. They don't necessarily think that prophecy can be fulfilled because that's a supernatural thing. And the people who would typically take this Maccabean view believe in naturalism. Now, typically I say that. Typically. They're going to be the predominant ones that take this view. I still think that this view is actually a really good interpretation, in my opinion. Um, and it's, again, it's not to say that I actually think the Maccabean view can be true in addition to another one. Because we see that all the time. And if you look at the book of Isaiah, there are prophecies that are being made about the nation of Israel within that specific time of the Assyrians and um, even, you know, Isaiah will even touch on Cyrus. But the point is that he's making these prophecies, but sometimes they're also in alignment with the Messiah. And so it's not an either or, it's actually both, you know. And so um, I actually think it's okay if you do take this Maccabean approach, um, but I actually, I would say as well that probably an additional approach is also um, probably one that you could also take in, in addition to it. So you don't have to like just pick the Maccabean one. But the Maccabean one says that ultimately um, that 587 mark is when the word going out to rebuild Jerusalem would happen and then Cyrus would come to do so. Um, so it's, it's similar in, a ways, uh, in, a, in some ways. Um, the, other, the other point is um, some people think the anointed one at this point, if you notice the anointed one is different, they think it's Cyrus that is the anointed one initially. And then, um, then the next one, the anointed one that's cut off, is On- Onias the third. Which, if you remember, actually, I don't know if I touched on this because it's kind of an outlier to the story of Antiochus. But when Antiochus came to power around 171-ish BC, uh, not came to power, but started his his basically battle against Israel. One of the first things he did was had Onias the third, the high priest, killed. So some people think that this was the anointed being cut off at this point. Um, and so that uh, 171 is when that happens, and then the seven years basically is from um, that that moment that the murder of Onias happens to when Antiochus continues to destroy the city until it's rededicated in um, 164, and that's kind of the conclusion of that 70th week. Okay, if you notice that there. So in all the other views, that 70th week hasn't happened yet. That's the one that they basically, people kind of move forward out of the timeline because there's been some, there's a gap or they believe it's more symbolic in nature. Whereas this one's saying, no, this 490 years happened and it happened right in a row. Uh, there, was no, there was no skipping of anything and it happened with Jeremiah's talking about the building being re- rebuilt. It actually beginning to take place when Cyrus came to power. The murder of Onias, um, the third, the high priest, when ultimately in 171 BC, when Antiochus would would kill him, and at that point we do know that, at least from the Maccabees, we, from what the Maccabees say, uh, which is our source for this story, one of our sources, is it says that um, the people wanted to make a covenant with with Antiochus, and that actually for three and a half years, that, that's when the the ramping up of Israel's idolatry and sinfulness would really take place. And so there's some validity. Like I said, there's some validity there, at least from what we know about the Maccabees. The hard part is, we don't know if the Maccabees were interpreting their story in light of Daniel, which that kind of makes it hard, right? Because we don't believe that the Maccabees are authoritatively Scripture, but we believe they're historical documents. Where it's, well, it's very possible if the Maccabees are going to be written within the, you know, within the 100, B, 100 B.C. area, they could have looked back at Daniel and said, okay, um, let's take this, this, and this, and apply it to this historical context. You know, it's, I mean, we don't know. We don't really know. The only, we don't have a ton of sources for all the things that happened to Israel outside of it. So it's kind of a guessing game when it comes to the history of it. And the last one is the amillennial approach. 
which this is the approach that typically, um, I, I, I don't want to speak for Mark and Michael, but I know we had that question come up you know, last week when we were talking about that. I, I think that they probably would land on this approach, which is the idea that ultimately the 77s are symbolic, that they are not uh, literal 490 years, that they are simply meant to emphasize, again, that number of completion, 77s, and that the reason that years aren't specified is because it's not concerned with nailing down an exact chronology, that it's more concerned with mapping out a, a way in which we see this, the, the Savior and the Messiah come into the picture and what that means for these six things that ultimately are, are done so are done with by the end when Christ is, has uh, risen from the dead and, and ascended into heaven. Okay, So it starts with, um, basically during the reign of Cyrus, um, the word goes out and it's not, and where I said the Lord, because the reign goes out not from Cyrus, but from God. They see the decree happening from God, where the word goes out from God, and he's the one, but it's during the reign of Cyrus. Whereas the other one says, Cyrus is the one actually making the decree. Um, this one's saying, well, it's during Cyrus, but actually it's God making the decree. And this is going to funnel through everything else. And then ultimately, it sees those seven weeks and 62 weeks. Uh, when we talked about that translation, that's part of why this becomes important. Because they see that, even though there's a distinction between the seven um, sevens and the, and the uh, 62 sevens, they actually still couple them together. You know, when we say seven sevens, and 62 sevens, there's, they, they would translate it as, well, there's really not a reason to separate these out. There, there's a distinction being made because of what's happening, but not because um, of the events that um, ultimately are being described and how they're, how they're happening. So I'll get, I'll get to more of that in a second. And then the anointed one being cut off, they'd see that as Jesus in his crucifixion. They would see the city being destroyed by people, uh, by the people of the coming prince, being Titus, destroying the, um, the temple. And it's also important to note, at least one scholar uh, noted this, which I thought was really interesting. And we might even be talking about this um, tomorrow night and Sunday morning, because we're going to be getting into Mark 13, which is part of when Jesus begins to talk about the abomin- abomination of desolations, which you know Daniel talks about at the end of this chapter here. Um, but... Part of what um, I, uh, E.J. Young, um, which is he's a he's a popular Daniel scholar on this, he he has actually said, which I think is an interesting point that I hadn't heard before, that the abominations are actually those sacrifices that are taking place after the fact that Jesus has died and resurrected. They become abominations because they are still trying to replace the sacrifice that actually covers their sin. Um, I thought that was a really interesting point. And so his point is not that Titus, in and of himself, or anything that he puts in the temple, is the abomination, but actually he's just the desolator of the abominations that are taking place within the temple. So I thought that was an interesting point. Not everyone agrees on that, um, but um, there's also just the idea that ultimately something will be set up in the temple that is an abomination, which again, we see with the story of Antiochus. And so I don't think it's an either-or. I think it is probably more of a both-and um, within how these time frames are actually lining up. And that ultimately, again, that Jesus confirms this covenant. He's not uh, Usually when the word covenant is used, um, it's, it's saying we're going to cut a covenant, kind of like what we're talking about. You're talking about the process of making a covenant. But that's not the language Daniel uses here. And that, I mean, it's, this is very rare for Daniel to use this type of language of the covenant. And it seems like he's more saying that the covenant will prevail than he is that a new one's going to be made, 
with um, some sort of antichrist in some capacity. Um, and then the last is ultimately the abomination of desolation. That's going to be the temple itself. It's going to be destroyed. Um, and then the conclusion of the 70th week, they, they're, they're not making a guess. They would say, well, Daniel doesn't say how it actually concludes. Um, he never actually explicitly says that, so we're not even going to touch it. We don't know uh, what that actually means. And again, I don't put any dates there because they're not worried about making the 490 years fit. They're simply saying that Daniel's point is to make it into a symbolic, or really God's point, because it's God's decree, is to make it into a symbolic representation. And so they do this, uh, they believe this in, in a couple of ways, but the, mo- the most important reason they do this is from Leviticus um, Leviticus 26. I won't read all of it because we're running out of time, which I just looked and it's already 7.50. This happens every week. I don't know why I'm surprised. Okay, uh, let me just highlight a couple parts in Leviticus 26. He's basically talking about the covenant that ultimately God has made. And he says if you, especially in Deuteronomy, this is very clear, if you disobey the covenant, there are curses that will happen. If you, do, if you obey the covenant, there are blessings that will happen. And essentially, as a result of wickedness, as a result of rebellion and disobedience, he says, then if you walk contrary to me, you will not listen to me. I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. He says that's in uh, 26 verse 21. He says it again in uh, verse 24. Then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold. And he says this idea of sevenfold, sevenfold, each time. The reason he does this is clarified in chapter 25, verses 1 through 7. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Right? So he's saying, every, what he's going to say is every seventh year, I won't read the whole thing because again, we're running out of time. Every seventh year, you should keep a Sabbath. You should not work the land. You need to give the land rest. Okay, so what, what the uh, all millennial is making the point of is that for 70 years, right, that 70 years they were in exile um, was a way for the land to have rest. And Chronicles affirms this, okay, because the Israelite people didn't do this. It was a way to basically recoup on that. And ultimately what would happen, even within this 490 years idea, is that there is a Sabbath rest happening for um, the, the people in the land. In addition to that, there's also what was be, become known as the Jubilee, Year of Jubilee, where um, people would be able to go free throughout that. So this is kind of the, the basic gist. I want to answer a few questions before we go because we're getting close. Any other questions that I can clarify with this? We're probably going to have to hit this again next week because I can tell that I used a fire hose of information on you guys tonight. So, yes. Yes. So, it, so though there's two things I would say. The Maccabean approach. I want to make that make it clear too. Like this doesn't necessarily mean um, that if you take this approach, you disregard the supernatural. Um, I, I just say most people who take this approach do so because they because they don't take the supernatural. They don't regard prophecy as being possible. 
And so then the question becomes, well, it's in the book of Daniel, right? And so it seems like a prophecy. But they believe the book of Daniel was written when these events were taking place, after the events had taken place. That's why. So that's where hopefully that, that might help with the confusion. So they believe that ultimately all of the events of Antiochus and when that was all done, like the, the temple being rededicated, that happened in 164 BC. They believe that Daniel probably was written around 120-ish BC. They don't believe that it was written because they can't, right? I mean, if it, if it was, it would be prophecy. And so they reject the idea that it was written um, in, in the 500 BC area when Daniel was actually living. Um, and so what they would say is what, what the, whoever wrote this book, what they did was they just looked back at the historical events that did happen and then they wrote it down like it was a prophecy. What's that? Well, that's kind of that's part of the question that most people ask to those people is, well, this was accepted in the canon. It seems kind of weird that the Jewish people would accept a book that they knew was forged, right? That they knew was ultimately like written out after the fact, right? So I'm not exactly sure how they they mend that. They, I think, from what I've read, they typically try to say, well, it was just supposed to be a really big encouragement to the Jewish people, and it's like, well. If, if they knew it wasn't a lie, though, like, it's not much of an encouragement, you know? And it's hard to believe, like, you know, one of the things we talked about at the beginning of our class, if you guys remember that, these books were in uh, the Septuagint, they were in Theodosian, they were in all these really old manuscripts, the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's really hard to believe that if this book was written in, 120, in the 120 BC, that it would have been that uh, far spread, uh, so that multiple people could have read the book, and, but then also not have known that it was all made up on the spot. You know, so that's part of the the issue. I think that most um, uh, conservative theologians would have with that viewpoint is it doesn't really seem like it seems weird that they would have accepted it into the canon at that point. You know, with that as scripture. So that's a good call. But all that to say, if if I'm somebody who does take this Maccabean approach as a possibility and as a as a real thing that could have happened. I still think he wrote it in 500 BC. So for me, it still is prophecy, you know, and it still and it still could have happened in that capacity. Um, so hopefully that clears some things up. But I will I will come back next week and I'm going to make it simpler. But so any more questions? I know we're at eight o'clock. So oh, it's not yet actually. We have got four minutes. Any more questions? All right. Well, um, if you do have any, let me know. Um, I, I want to make sure this is clear because ultimately, um, I, I don't want you feeling like there's... I mean, ultimately, nobody really understands. Like I said, there's no general consensus about this. We really don't know how this all works out. But I want you to at least be able to have an educated understanding of it um, so that um, you can begin to, to dialogue with the rest of Scripture and how this might play a role within it. Okay? Um, so some helpful reading that might be, if you're interested in more of it, would actually be Zechariah. Um, Zechariah and really all those minor prophets that if you remember from that timeline I gave you at the beginning of class read through some of those those might be helpful in kind of seeing how some of these things begin to take shape but the point of it all is that God is taking care of it he's in control right that's what we say every single week and that's the point of this verse is in Daniel's deepest worst moment when he goes to God in prayer and confesses all the sin God interrupts him to tell him I am going to change all of this. I'm going to wipe away all sin. I'm going to make an atonement for it. And it's going to be at the cost of myself. 
And the reality is that it is going to inaugurate something so beautiful that you will finally have reconciliation with me as your covenant God once more. And it will be a better covenant. Because it won't be, it won't be based off of what you do. It will be based off what I did. So that's, that's kind of the point of it all. But again, I'm going to touch it again next week. We'll get into chapter 10. Uh, somebody asked me where our last class was. So just to clarify, it'll be April 24th. And so we will basically knock out the next three chapters uh, within that time period. Um, and so we'll go to a recap of this one. I'll do some clarifying, and then we'll get into chapter 10. So let me pray for us real quick. Father God, we're so thankful for who you are. We're thankful for your word. Uh, Father, I pray that you could help bring clarity to these situations, Father. Uh, We don't need to understand it. And uh, probably the worst thing we could do is try to force a timeline into this, Father, when the reality is what you want us to know more than anything is that you are in control. And Father, we we pray that we could continue to rely on that, to, to lean into it, Father. We love you, and we pray, Father, that you would help us become more like you through our study of this book. And it's in your Son's name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.